But as we continue our journey through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, I want to tell maybe a little different uh, piece of the story that we don't hear so much, and hopefully that'll help us as we talk about and illustrate what is the main thing, which is our sermon series. We know that King David is, like I said early, called the man after God's own heart, and and as we read this story, or as we hear the story, we're reminded that David was the youngest of eight boys. And when God had had enough of King Saul's disobedience, he told the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse's house and anoint uh, one of his sons to be king, and God would show him when he got there. And as we remember from the story, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, and Jesse goes, well, here's my oldest son. And God says, nope. Well, how about son number two? And God says, nope. Uh, son number three, four, five, six, seven, all knows. And just to show you how much confidence that Jesse had, the father, that it had to be one of his older sons, he didn't even bring David to the lineup. David was out tending the sheep, and part of that is because he was the youngest, but he uh, Samuel says, do you not have another son, Jesse? And Jesse goes, well, I have one more. It's David, but he's, he's just out taking care of sheep. He's the youngest. Why, why would you want to anoint him king? And so Samuel had Jesse call him in and called in David, and God said to Samuel, this is the one. And so Samuel anointed him king. And the Bible tells us from that point on, David was anointed with the Spirit of God. And even as a young man, even after he had this anointing, he had to go back out and tend to sheep. I mean, that was his job in the family. And so off he is, he's back out tending sheep. And as he's out there, um, a young person from Saul's uh, court comes to David and grabs him and brings him to Saul because Saul, uh, from the time of his disobedience, God had removed the Spirit of God from Saul, and Saul was distressed. He was disturbed. He uh, was probably depressed and angry and all that kind of stuff. And the only thing that soothed him was music. And so this young person from the court of King Saul said, well, I know this one guy who is pretty good at music. And so David came to the court and began performing music for Saul, and it soothed Saul. And so Saul began to love David. And as we know in this story, there's this Goliath, this giant that is taunting Israel, and nobody is going to face the giant. And so finally David shows up one day and he says, I'll go face him. And so here this shepherd with his sling and with his stones, as we know, goes and kills Goliath. And because he killed Goliath, Saul put him in charge of a portion of his army. And wherever Saul sent David, David had success. In fact, he had so much success that the women started singing, Ah, Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. And like 
any one of us who maybe has someone underneath you, when they're getting more praise, there's some jealousy that shows, uh, maybe some anxiousness, and if you're king and all of a sudden there is a general, so to speak, of one of your armies is having greater praise than you are, you've got some things to maybe worry about, and so Saul began to chase after David to kill David. So David is hiding in a cave, and it's interesting because David's father and brothers show up in this cave along with those who were in distress, those who were in debt, and those who were discontent or bitter of soul. In other words, the people that showed up to be with David were the ones who had all of the problems 400 men hanging with David, all in debt, all bitter, all in distress. How many of you would brag about an army like that, right? It's not the greatest and the best, it's the least. And David is hiding in this cave, and once you know, Saul shows up in that cave to relieve himself. In other words, go to the bathroom. The opportunity is before David. He is the anointed king to be, and there in the mouth of the cave, relieving himself, is the king who's trying to kill you. You have the right you have the opportunity. Should you take it? And of course, his men were all like, yeah, it's time. Take him out. The opportunity is here. Go, take him out. And David chooses to go up and he cuts off a piece of Saul's garment, which, um, I mean, sometimes the stories we read in the Bible, if you really take time to let your imagination go. I can't imagine sneaking up behind somebody and whether his garment is hanging off to the side or whatever, just to sneak up to him while he's going to the bathroom to cut off a piece of the garment. David chose not to do what he probably felt like he had the right to do he waited for God to elevate him to the throne. He waited for God to remove Saul from the throne. Imagine how this whole story of King David might be different if David chose to kill Saul at that moment. Yes, he probably would have been ushered to the throne more quickly but can you imagine the divisiveness in the kingdom of Israel? Because there would still be those who were still followers of Saul, and they would go, there's no way this person deserves to be on the throne because he killed the king. But because David waited when he was elevated to king, it unified Israel. 
And they had great success and great prosperity. Jump now a bunch of years ahead in King David's life. And King David's at retirement age. He has fought well. He has led well. Israel has been this great land, this great country. And the people have felt safe As a king and as serving so well for all these years, he deserves rest. And so the Bible tells us that in the spring of the year, this is in 2 Samuel 11, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab, one of his generals, and his servants with him and all of Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites, but David remained in Jerusalem. Again, he had the right to wait and rest. He had served well. He had the right because he was king and he could tell anybody what to do. And so he's lounging around his palace and he walks out onto the balcony and looks over the city maybe admiring all that he has done. And there's a woman bathing herself on the roof, and David has her brought to him, and as king, he has the right to do that. He has the freedom to do that, and as we know from this story, he sleeps with her, and again, he has the right to do that and the freedom to do that because he is king, The problem is this woman is married and now she's pregnant and so David tries to cover the story. And again, he has the right to do it. He is king. So he brought her husband home and encouraged her husband to spend time with his wife and Her husband Uriah had the right to go and spend time with his wife, but the ironic thing is he chose to stay at the gate because his fellow soldiers were all in battle. He chose to give up his right. So David sends Uriah to the front of the battle And tells his general to pull back so that Uriah is killed in battle. Again, David has the right to make that decision. He has the freedom to do that because he is king. Notice the difference in these two parts of David's story. In one place, David gives up his right as future king and allows God to work And in time, God elevated him to king, and it brought unity to the kingdom. Later on, David did what he had every right to do and was involved in adultery and murder, and it caused division in the kingdom and in his family. And murder and... Sexual immorality are a part of the family story of David moving forward. 
I share these two parts of this story because Paul in 1 Corinthians, where we've been at here in 8 and 9, is talking about freedom and rights. And in our text today, Paul talks about his rights and he makes a defense for his right around a certain issue. And so if you want to join, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and we're going to start with verse 1. You can look in your Bible or we will have the words on the screen. So 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves a soldier at his own expense? Who plants vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. It is about oxen. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? We did not use this right. On the contrary, We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites And I'm not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. In the first three verses of chapter 9, Paul establishes his rights. Why can he make the decision he has made? Paul reminds the church in Corinth of his rights by asking some rhetorical questions. And these questions are, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Paul asks these questions, which the people already know the answer. Am am I not free? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Well, yes. Haven't I seen Jesus? Yes. Are, Are you not my workman? Are you not... If it wasn't for me, church in Corinth, you wouldn't be. Wasn't it for my labor? Paul is trying to lay out for here for the church in Corinth. This is what I base my rights on. In verses 4 through 6, Paul talks about his rights. Paul's rights are, verse 4, to eat and drink. Don't we have the right to food and drink. We, we talked about this last Sunday because Paul talks about this in chapter 8. Paul's saying in chapter 8, if you remember, uh, I mean, if eating food offered to idols causes a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then I'm never going to eat meat. I'm not. I have the freedom to It's my right to, but I'm not going to do it. And if you remember, we talked about many new believers in Corinth came from a polytheistic world where they believed in many different gods. They had gods for everything. And when they first became a follower of Jesus, it took a while for this polytheistic idea to get out of them. So God, in essence, at times was just another God. And so they, they had to still learn what it means that God is the one true God. And so Paul is like, hey, if my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ stumble because I would eat some food offered to idols because they were thinking I was worshiping that idol by eating it, well then, you know what? I'm not even going to take the chance. I'm not eating. Paul has the right to eat and drink whatever he wants, but he chooses not to. In verse 5, his other right, to have a wife. He says, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's, and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? We jump back to chapter 7, and we talked about this before Christmas. In fact, Matthew Talk something about ball and chain, if you remember. But Paul is saying, I have the right to have a believing wife with me. But one of the things he dialogued about is, if you are married, it can be a distraction to proclaiming the gospel. And so for Paul, he chose not to have a wife and if you remember, having a wife is nothing. There's nothing wrong with having a wife. He's he's just saying it can be a distraction if and keep you from doing what you're called to do. And for Paul, that calling was to preach the gospel. He didn't want anything in the way. So he's telling the church here, I have the right to take a believing wife with me, but I choose not to. The other right is to get paid for preaching the gospel. He says, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? 
I mean, Paul doesn't receive anything from the church. In fact, he preaches and teaches, and then he goes and does work to make money for, for food and housing and whatever it may be. But Paul is telling them, I have the right to be paid. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul's defense of that right. And Paul's defense comes in three different forms. The first form is the world knows. In verse 7, he gives three examples of how the world knows. One, a soldier. A soldier serves and gets paid. The soldier doesn't guard the city or guard the palace or fight and then go home and work to make money. No, 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 no. The soldier gets paid. The other is a vine dresser. A vine dresser plants a seed, takes care of the vine, and gets to eat the fruit of the harvest. The third example is a shepherd. A shepherd cares for his flock. And then he gets to drink the milk from the goats. It's a no-brainer for Paul because the world knows He has the right to get paid. If the world sees it, you as a church should see it. The second part of his defense is that the law says it. Verse 8, 9, and 10, Paul shows how the law, the Torah, says, Hey, you you pay people for their work. And he actually quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4 that says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. This is being told in the picture that uh, if you go back to Deuteronomy 25, um, all around there in chapter 24 and on, Paul is talking about when you go and make a harvest, when you go and gather harvest, He tells them in Deuteronomy 24, go through and gather the harvest, but don't go back to get everything. If you miss stuff, leave it. Leave it for the sojourner. Leave it for the fatherless, for the widow. Leave it for the orphan. Leave all the extra. And then in the midst of this, he talks about not muzzling an ox that's trading in the grain. For many commentators, he thinks that there's a, from a lesser to greater argument here. The lesser is, if, if, if the law says it's important to take care of your ox by not muzzling it, so too shouldn't we take care of those who are involved in the harvest. Or so too shouldn't we take care of those who are orphans and widows. The third reason that Paul gives a defense that he should get paid is the temple workers. Verse 13 of chapter 9, Paul's, or do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? In other words, temple workers, that's where they work. They get paid from the temple. The whole main thing for Paul here is this. He has laid out The reason why he has the right to get paid. He's established his rights, that he's an apostle, that he has seen Jesus and that he has taught them. He tells them his rights are to eat whatever and to have a believing wife and to receive 
payment for his work. So he has all these rights and he lays them out. And then in verse 12 of chapter 9, he says these words. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul saw that if he really expected payment from the church, it would hinder the gospel. The ESV translation says that he would rather endure anything than put up an obstacle, than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. For Paul, as we learn, eating and drinking, anything and everything, you have the right, you could cause somebody to stumble. Having a wife could be an obstacle. Same too with being paid. He goes into more detail about how that payment could be an obstacle. And one of the reasons why that payment could be an obstacle is there was kind of a tradition back in the early church that if you paid somebody or if you gave them any kind of money, there was an expectation of something in return. And so what Paul was afraid of is if he received money from the people in church in Corinth, they would all of a sudden expect him to do things the way they wanted them done. And Paul didn't want that to get in the way. He wanted to serve Christ only. So for Paul... Any obstacle to the gospel is a bad obstacle. So it got me thinking, what are some obstacles that maybe Paul would address today? So to help me with answering that question, I actually went and looked at some research done by Barna Research Group. And this research had to do with why 18 to 29-year-olds are leaving the church or not coming to church. Now, we don't know if these would be things that Paul would address today, but as we look at these reasons why young adults aren't coming to church, it might help us get a better picture of maybe what are some obstacles that we face. The first thing that Barna Research Group showed is that church is overprotective. For many young adults, Christianity feels stifling. It's fear-based. It avoids risk of all kinds. In fact, um, 30% of the young adults that were tallied said... Christians demonize everything outside of the church. And it's true. I mean, watch your social media. Anything outside the church, we have a tendency to demonize. We do. We, we demonize the other political party. We demonize the other denomination. We demonize anything that's outside of our group. It's, it's my right as a follower of Jesus to express my belief. 
It is my right to express what is right and wrong. The obstacle is it keeps us from being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Another obstacle that Barna Research Group found amongst 19 to 29 year olds church is not relevant. One third said the church is boring. One quarter said faith is not relevant to my career or interests. Interesting, 20% said God seems missing from my experience of church. Again, we have the right to make church look however we want it to look. We, we want it to be the way we want it. And we have that right. But could the obstacle to the gospel be that we're not relevant anymore? Are we so busy trying to protect our church and keep it the way we want it? that we've created this obstacle for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be presented to the world around us. A third obstacle is the church is antagonistic towards science. Thirty percent of those that were polled said that churches are out, out of step with the scientific world. Another 25% say that Christianity is anti-science. Another 25% say they have been turned off by the creation-evolution debate. If you remember, I said last week, remember, science is the study of the natural world, God created the natural world. So in reality, science is the study of the Creator and His creation. Dr. Byerly is a Christian man who is a biologist, and um, I've known him for a number of years back when I was doing youth ministry. We had him come in and talk about evolution versus creation. And one of the things that he told me as a biologist that really has helped me in this whole conversation of science and Christianity, he said, Brad, he said, my goal when it comes to creation and evolution is to help everybody to realize that there's basically two trees. There's a tree that God created, and there's a tree that everything came from nothing. He said, my goal is to get everybody on the tree of God created. He says, once somebody is on the tree of God created, then we allow science to help us determine how God created You see, we have to remember the creation story in Genesis is a poem. And on that 
God created tree, there are those who believe God created in a literal 24-hour day. Seven of them. There are, on the other extreme of the God created tree, those who believe that God used the evolutionary process to create. And then you have anywhere in between. That God created, created that the 24-hour day is maybe millions of years. We can debate all we want about whether it's a young earth or an old earth. We can have that debate. But maybe the debate is becoming an obstacle for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be presented to the world. Maybe the first thing we need to do is tell people about Jesus. Help them to see that Jesus is the creator of the world. Yeah, let's not get into an argument about whether it's seven literal days or not. In my humble opinion, just because God created in seven literal days or seven million years doesn't make God's creative ability any less powerful. Our oldest son is a biologist, cancer research. It is so much fun to hear him talk about how biology is revealing more of God to him as he studies God's creation. Now, if I were to push my son, my son would be more of an old earth creationist person. Believe that God used millions of years. That that would be my son. But you know what? I don't care. The reason why I don't care is because he's seeing God in the microscope, in the biology. He has a love and a passion for Jesus. Another reason, another obstacle that Barna Research Group pointed out is that the church is judgmental. One-sixth of young Christians say they have made mistakes and feel judged in church because of them. I, I grew up in that world. I, I told you a little bit last week. If you drank alcohol, you were a sinner. If you danced, you were a sinner. And Terry and I were talking about this. You, you can't dance, but you can roller skate. You, you can't play cards, that's a sin. But if you play rook, it's not a sin. Now, for you youngsters, you probably think that's funny, but that's the world that some of us grew up in. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the point is, if we're so worried about getting people to act a certain way, it can become an obstacle for the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great command is to go make disciples, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that means baptizing. That means they're surrendering their lives to Jesus. Once they are baptized, once they have surrendered their lives to Jesus, now you teach them to obey. 
And in that process of teaching them to obey, you do it with grace and love. The last obstacle that Barnard Research Group talked about is that church is not safe. Young adults do not feel safe admitting that sometimes Christianity doesn't make sense. They're not able to ask some of the most pressing life questions that they have because sometimes it comes across as that they are doubting their faith and it's not so much they're doubting their faith, they just have questions because not everything is absolutely black and white. And so they don't feel safe in the church to ask those questions. So we have the right to have all the right answers to make everything look black and white, but that position can create an obstacle from people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. As I conclude today, there's two questions that I want to ask you. The first question is this, what freedom and rights do I have that may be an obstacle to me proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a question that you need to ask yourself. That's a question that you need to get alone in your prayer closet with Jesus and say, hey Jesus, what rights or, or freedoms am I so hung up on that it's preventing me from proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? The second question is just a simple follow-up question to that. Am I willing to give up my rights and freedoms so that I can proclaim the gospel? of Jesus Christ. Paul, for Paul, there was no right or no freedom that he would not give up if it meant that he could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to continue on in chapter 9. Where Paul says, I have become all things to all men that I might win some. Amen.